Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, July 25th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, just want to note on this July 25th, looking at the calendar here, it is National Wine and Cheese Day. It is National Hot Fudge Sunday Day. National Merry-Go-Round Day, uh, but very importantly for millions of families out there, it is also World IVF Day today. Wine and cheese, hot fudge sundaes. I feel like that's not necessarily a great mix with the merry-go-round. No, no, <laughs> they definitely they did go not well together. <laughs> no. As for uh, World IVF Day, for any families out there who are going through IVF right now, trying to start families or, or grow their families. It can be tough. So we're thinking about you and, and wishing you luck as you go through that whole process. Yes, we're thinking about all of you. Uh, Jill, uh, today actually marks the first ever IVF transfer back in 1978. Um, hence, the international recognition for the day and the millions and millions and millions of families that have been impacted by the technology over the last 40 years. All right, let's get to some headlines here. The U.S. government is suing Texas over its new immigration barriers. We check in on the status of illegal migration. Israel at a crossroads and facing massive protests internally after Parliament passed a new law reforming the country's Supreme Court. Here in the U.S., the Alabama woman who went missing and sparked a national search finally admits it was all a hoax. The IRS says it will end surprise door knocks. Country star Jason Aldean skyrockets up the charts after his song controversy. A look at how sorority consultants are charging thousands of dollars to get your daughter into the right house. Priorities, Jill, priorities. And if you want more variety in your avocados, well, science has developed a new variant. Jill, I've had no complaints, uh, but I am looking forward to seeing whether this one will last slightly longer on my countertop. Because there is that like right mode, right? Like it's not right, and then it's too right, and you have like probably about twelve minutes in between. <laughs> and the worst is when you have three or four avocados, and they're all ripe at exactly the same time, and you can't possibly have <laughs> all of them in time. I think that's Taco Tuesday, Jill. <laughs> uh, Moshe's on the same history. Jill, we look back at the U.S. invasion of Canada, and what? Uh, where? Exactly. <laughs> and it all ends at Niagara Falls, coming up and on this day. Okay, let's start with the U.S. Justice Department filing suit on Monday against the state of Texas over its installation of a floating barrier meant to stop people from swimming across the Rio Grande. The feds argue that the interlocking buoys placed in the river by the state violated federal law. The suit comes after Texas Governor Greg Abbott refused a request from the Justice Department to remove the buoys voluntarily, vowing instead to fight in court to keep them in place. Abbott has blamed President Biden for the large numbers of migrants crossing the border illegally. Abbott wrote in a letter to Biden on Monday, quote, if you truly care about human life, you must begin enforcing federal immigration laws. Texas will fully utilize its constitutional authority to deal with the crisis you have caused. The federal government argues that Texas is in violation of a section of the Federal Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act. That act prohibits the placement of structures in waterways without federal approval, and it presents humanitarian concerns. The suit follows a growing outcry among Democrats and even some in Texas law enforcement over the increasingly aggressive tactics that the state is using 
to block immigrants, including installing additional layers of razor wire along the banks of the Rio Grande. State police officers have been shouting at migrants to turn back and in some cases refusing to provide water to people who request it. This is according to some recent reports. Texas has about a 1,300-mile border with Mexico and says it needs to fill the gaps of what it sees as a lackluster federal response. The governor says he is happy to see the president in court. So, Jill, this floating barrier on the Rio Grande has also provoked tension with Mexico, which says that it violates treaties. The Secretary of Foreign Relations for Mexico has asked the U.S. government to remove the buoys and the razor wire. Uh, That letter came last month. This legal fight represents the first time the Justice Department has directly challenged Governor Abbott over his effort to enforce immigration laws himself at the state level. Abbott's been sending thousands of National Guard troops, state police officers to block migrants from crossing into Texas. This is a multi-billion dollar program known as Operation Lone Star. And it comes as cities in Texas, like El Paso, have been overrun with thousands and thousands of migrants, uh, leaving Texas authorities to say, we need to do something ourselves. Jill, you might remember uh, earlier this year, there was a fight between the feds and Arizona. Arizona was putting up cargo containers across the desert. Uh, Eventually, Arizona would relent to the federal requests. But here in Texas, They are not so far. And this fight led us to look into the numbers, the latest numbers when it comes to illegal migration and the number of undocumented migrants coming over the border. Uh, Those numbers last month, Jill, plummeted in June to the lowest level since the start of the Biden administration uh, more than two years ago. The Biden administration is uh, giving credit to stricter asylum rules that it passed earlier this year. Uh, Remember, we were talking a lot about Title 42 uh, and whether that would bring a surge of migrants across the border. But there was implementation of new measures, including an app and new restrictions on migrants that have been able to lower the numbers. Border Patrol agents recorded just over 100,000 apprehensions last month. That was a sharp drop from nearly 170,000 in May. The last time the Border Patrol apprehensions were that low along the U.S.-Mexico border was February 2021, the first full month of the Biden presidency. But at the same time, unlawful border entries still remain very high compared to pre-pandemic levels. And this doesn't count, by the way, for the number of uh, asylum seekers that we are letting through every month, uh, those number in the tens of thousands. And Motion isn't just border states and border cities that are trying to figure out how to handle an influx of migrants. Even in New York City, which has traditionally welcomed migrants with open arms, Eric Adams, the Democratic mayor, getting a lot of criticism and backlash because of a new policy that he just announced, which would require that migrants staying in shelters at intake centers leave after 60 days. And if they haven't found new housing by that deadline, they need to reapply for residence at the shelter. Again, he's getting a lot of backlash. But I think it it points to the fact that this is a real issue. There, There are not unlimited resources. Yeah, and you see in this story that clearly states are taking things into their own hands and it's now escalating into a full battle in the courts. Speaking of a battle in the courts or over the courts, uh, a major story that we are tracking out of the Middle East, the Israeli parliament approved the first part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's sweeping proposal to overhaul the judiciary on Monday establishing some limits on the country's Supreme Court and its power to strike down government action. Hundreds of thousands of protesters turned out Monday night across the country to oppose the measure. Critics said it would erode one of the few checks on government power in Israel. 
It is a country without a written constitution. Supporters led by Prime Minister Netanyahu defended the changes as a necessary correction to judicial overreach. Both sides claim to be defending democracy after more than seven months of protests and mass public opposition that have really split the country. The Israeli parliament, which is known as the Knesset, gave its final approval Monday on that new law. It prevents the Israeli high court from using something called the reasonableness standard to review government and ministerial decisions. The bill passed with 64 votes in favor and zero against. And that is because the entire 56 member opposition boycotted the vote in protest. Like many countries that don't have a formal written constitution, the high court in Israel uses a number of standards to rule on the legality of things like the reasonableness standards. Here, this will apply to ministerial decisions related to things like hiring and firing, and also some policy decisions. In Israel, the court has blocked certain individuals from being appointed to cabinet posts using this provision. The Netanyahu government is looking at other reforms this fall related to how justices are appointed. The opposition has vowed to keep up the protests And they believe that the reforms are a slippery slope that simply erodes the country's democracy. And they have now filed a case with the very Supreme Court to rule on this new law related to its own power. So certainly something that we'll be watching. Yeah, a tricky decision, right? Uh, and, And how that unfolds and how the court rules on that and then how parliament and the prime minister react to that. Jill, we've been watching this closely. We got a number of questions over on Instagram. Israel is a country of about 9 million people. So with nearly a million people sometimes hitting the streets, uh, that would be like tens of millions of protesters in the U.S. This issue is dominating the country. uh, And we mentioned the protesters, but there's also been uh, large protests advocating for the reform here in recent weeks. And as you look at some of the claims here, not surprisingly, in some ways, the opposition might be overstating the issue. In some cases, the majority understating the impact. So let's try to break this down a little bit for everybody. Parliamentary systems are unique. Uh, In some cases, the Israeli Supreme Court here, a lot more autonomous, much more powerful than the U.S. Supreme Court, hence the concern about eroding its authority. So you mentioned the reasonableness doctrine, whether something is reasonable. And that's not unique to Israel. That principle is used in a number of other countries, not here in the U.S., but in the U.K., in Canada, in Australia. And the standard is commonly used by courts there to determine the constitutionality or lawfulness of legislation and allows judges to make sure that decisions made by public officials are, quote, reasonable. Most recently, the prime minister in Israel tried to appoint somebody to a cabinet post, uh, and the court ruled that that was unreasonable because that uh, minister, that proposed minister, had served uh, prison time. But the Supreme Court had ruled that that appointment was unreasonable because that minister uh, had been convicted of crimes in the past. So the prime minister and his supporters argued the Supreme Court has become an insular, elitist group that does not represent the Israeli people. It has overstepped its role, and it's getting into issues it should not rule on, imposing its opinion on policies. So the prime minister has defended himself, saying countries like the U.S. uh, have uh, situations where politicians control which federal judges are appointed, right? The president's here appoint them, and then they're confirmed by the U.S. Senate, sometimes of the same party. At the same time, though, the way parliamentary systems work is it's not three co-equal branches of government. If you're elected and your party has the majority, you control both parliament and the executive, leaving more authority, more control 
to the court. Hence the concern from folks on the left. They also point to the fact, Jill, that Netanyahu is pushing for this overhaul at the same time he's on trial for corruption, facing charges of fraud, bribery, breach of trust. Though we should note that this reform related to reasonableness uh, wouldn't impact the charges against Netanyahu here. They actually use the standard only a couple times a year in the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, Either way, this is a big deal. You've seen the protests now going for seven plus months. uh, And internationally, it's gotten attention. President Biden has been calling Netanyahu multiple times saying, tone down the reform here. Uh, We're concerned about this. Then there are people saying, like, don't get involved in other countries' issues. But it has seen condemnation from the tech world, from CEOs, from other politicians in Washington and people abroad who are all concerned about, you know, what this portends um, in Israel down the road. One thing to watch, about 10,000 reservists in the Israeli military have said that they simply won't show up if they're needed. And that is a big deal because Israel's security is always top of mind um, for people there. Yeah, it's a country that depends on a volunteer military uh, facing enemies on multiple borders there. And so there's actually been issues related to multiple elite units that are involved in special operations, etc. Members of them saying, we're not going to show up voluntarily for training. We're not going to show up for various things. Um, And that has concerned um, the Israeli president, who's more of a ceremonial uh, position as opposed to the prime minister, as well as top military officials, uh, as you know, especially the the battle lines, so to speak, get drawn in the country, and a number of people will be striking from their jobs, and in this case, uh, striking from various duties in the military, and so the impact here down the road still unclear. Um, Jill, the next set of reforms would happen in the fall, but there's a long time till then. All right, Jill, we have a lot more to get to in today's speed read, including the new avocado variant and how much some people are paying to get their kids into sororities. But let's get to our newest partner first over here at Mo News, Shopify. They have a new deal for all of you, whether you're a business owner or have something that you have as a hobby, but you're looking to potentially sell. If you haven't heard of Shopify, maybe you've heard this sound effect before. That's the sound of another sale being made using Shopify. If you're a business owner like me and you're looking for a solution to get your product to as many people as possible, Shopify is the commerce platform that is revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. We're looking to launch a new Mo News merch line this fall, and we'll be using Shopify as our hub. And so whether you're an entrepreneur making your way on Facebook Marketplace or you're IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business. It has a great checkout system that helps you turn browsers into buyers. And right now, they have a special deal for the Mo News community. You can sign up right now for a $1 per month trial period over at shopify.com slash monews, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com, that is S-H-O-P-I-F-Y.com slash monews to take your business to the next level today. It is simple, it is easy, it is great, and you'll be hearing a lot of this once you sign up. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every morning. A friend of mine was actually over this weekend. He drinks it as well, and he described it as nutrition insurance, meaning as long as you have your AG1 in the morning, you know you're covered for the day in terms of all the nutrients that your body needs. Of course, it's not an excuse to just eat junk food for the rest of the day, but it does make you feel a little bit better. It is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy and quick and lets you get over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals, 
Right now, with your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal. Time now for the speed read from ABC News, an update on the Alabama woman who went missing. Carly Russell finally admitted Monday that she did not actually see a toddler wandering on the side of the highway and also lied about being kidnapped in a hoax that set off a nationwide effort to find her. That came out in a new statement from her attorney, the Hoover, Alabama police chief, reading the statement provided by Russell's lawyer during a news conference yesterday in which the 25-year-old nursing student says she was not abducted, as the nation was led to believe when she disappeared on July 13th. Russell said she had not even left the Hoover area. She returned home about 49 hours after calling 911 to report seeing a child on the interstate. She then told authorities and her parents that she had been kidnapped by a man and a woman who took nude photos of her, but that she did manage to escape after two days. Police couldn't verify any of it. The statement from her attorney partially read, My client apologizes for her actions to this community, to the volunteers who were searching for her, to the Hoover Police Department and other agencies as well. The police department now consulting with the DA's office regarding potential criminal charges. She's asking people to pray for her uh, as she gets the help she needs, Jill, in this statement. Um, As we noted on this podcast, originally when the story popped, something seemed a little fishy about it. Uh, Spotting a toddler in a diaper on an interstate late at night. Then miraculously, you know, returning home after two days uninjured, the cops saying we can't verify any of it. She apparently refused to be interviewed more than once after her initial claims. And she was scheduled to be interviewed again yesterday, but instead released this statement to the police. The department is hoping to reschedule the interview and still speak to Russell. They still want to know what she was up to in those 49 hours. In Monday's statement, we should note Russell claims that she acted alone here. She did not have any help in her hoax. As you noted, she called 911 to report that toddler on the side of the highway. She then called a relative uh, to talk about seeing the toddler and then lost contact. Literally, it appears she just dropped her phone to make it sound like she had been kidnapped. So unclear here what that relative is saying at this point. Um, Her disappearance made national headlines. We were receiving hundreds of messages, uh, Jill, that weekend being like, please alert people to this missing woman. People were genuinely concerned. And we've got notes after this came out saying, you know, I I stayed awake, uh, you know, praying for this girl. I was so worried about her. And the issue of missing black women in this country is still very serious. More than 30,000 black people in the U.S. remain missing at the end of 2022. That's according to the most recent data from the National Crime Information Center. Half of those cases are black women and girls. And that's been a concern here we've discussed on the pod, which is, you know, you don't want these situations to come up, which make people question when things are actually real, when someone actually goes missing uh, and the people will be less apt to share uh, because they might think that this next one is a hoax too. From the Washington Post, the IRS said Monday it is ending its decades-old policy of making unannounced home and business visits. It's an effort to help keep its workers safe and to combat scammers who pose as IRS agents. 
Effective immediately, revenue agents will no longer make those unplanned visits to taxpayers' homes and businesses, except in a few unique circumstances. The Treasury Department saying that the agency instead will mail letters to people to schedule meetings. The change ends an era at the IRS reversing a practice by officers whose duties include visiting homes and firms to resolve taxpayers' liabilities by collecting unpaid taxes and unfiled tax returns. The agency in recent years has experienced more threats in part tied to conspiracy theories that agents were going to target middle-income taxpayers more aggressively after the passage of a climate, healthcare, and tax bill that provided $80 billion to step up tax collections. In response to that, the agency last August announced a comprehensive review of safety at its facilities. And in May of this year, the IRS said it would begin limiting workers' personal identifying information on communications with taxpayers um, as the threats have been ratcheted up here. The agency also said that there is an increase in scam artists posing as IRS agents uh, that create confusion when they knock at your door. So now you can rest. So now, so now make sure you tell your parents uh, and anyone else in your family that if somebody knocks on their door claiming they're from the IRS, it is definitely a scam these days. From Reuters, the latest in the Quran burning controversy leading to riots and diplomatic confrontations. Iraq condemning the burning of a copy of the Quran in front of its embassy in Denmark on Monday and said Danish staff at the embassy in Baghdad had left the country after protests there. Demonstrations have raged across Iran and Iraq after Denmark and Sweden allowed the burning of the Quran under rules protecting free speech. Protesters in Iraq setting the Swedish embassy in Baghdad alight on Thursday. So the latest here, two anti-Islam protesters set fire to a copy of Islam's holy book in front of the Iraqi embassy in the Danish capital on Monday. The Danish foreign minister said he condemned the Quran burning in a tweet writing, these provocative and shameful acts do not represent the views of the Danish government. Appeal to all to de-escalate. Violence must never be the response. So you have these multiple burnings um, in Sweden, in Denmark, and then in response in the Middle East, uh, you have people literally letting the embassies of those countries on fire in response. Iraq's foreign ministry is calling on authorities across the European Union to, quote, quickly reconsider so-called freedom of expression and the right to demonstrate. They are condemning this and say that despite freedom of expression or freedom of speech in your countries, can you please uh, ban people from burning the Muslim holy book? So this has set off public protests, as you mentioned, in Iraq, Iran, also in Lebanon, uh, Pakistan, and several other countries in the region. And while Swedish and Danish authorities have condemned the desecration of the Quran, they say that they must allow it because the countries have freedom of expression and right to protest laws. The right to hold public demonstrations is protected by the Constitution in Sweden. Blasphemy laws were abandoned more than 50 years ago. And so police generally give permission based on whether they believe a public gathering can be held without major disruptions or safety risks. But of course, now there's safety risks abroad. And I wonder if that'll be a consideration here. But it, Jill, I feel like these types of stories pop up every few years, you know, people either trying to draw a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad, or lighting a Quran on fire. But this has led to one of the surprise situations of 2023, this confrontation between Scandinavia and the Middle East. 
back here at home from the AP. Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town is seeing exponential growth following controversy over its music video. The song Try That in a Small Town was released back in May, but debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 this week. The song experienced the biggest sales week for a country song in over 10 years. It hit 11.7 million on-demand audio and video streams between July 14th and 20th, marking a 1,000% increase from the previous week. Prior to the music video release on July 14th, the track accounted for 987,000 streams in the U.S. So the music video for the song lasted just one weekend on country music television before the network pulled it in response to an outcry over its setting and lyrics. When the network removed the video from its rotation, it had 350,000 views on YouTube. That number is now over 16 million, and it is the number one trending video under the music category. So, Mosh, just walk us through what is so controversial about the video. So we're going to take a listen to it in a second, but let's just describe the visual for everybody. Aldine performs in front of the Maury County Courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee, in the music video. That courthouse happens to be the site of a 1946 race riot and the 1927 mob lynching of a black man. Critics of the video claim that the visual here is a, quote, dog whistle. Others label it pro-lynching. Let's take a listen here to some of the lyrics in this song. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. So, Jill, you heard the lyrics there. This is about, you know, patriotism, America, uh, challenging people who engaged in violence during those protests a couple years ago. The video features a montage of violent street protests from the summer of 2020, robberies, people antagonizing police officers in riot gear. And then those scenes are juxtaposed with images of American flags being hoisted, children playing. And you hear Aldine say, try that in a small town. You'll see what happens. He says the song is about patriotism. No racism was intended here. Uh, He wrote in a tweet, quote, there is not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it. And there isn't a single video clip that isn't real news footage. And while I can try and respect others to have their own interpretation of a song with music, this one goes too far, Aldine wrote, uh, saying, again, no racism was intended here. And while the lyrics here don't mention race, uh, the visuals tell a different story, according to critics. Um, either way, this controversy, as you noted in these numbers, has been incredible for Aldine and the popularity of the song. Right. How many people listening to us right now are Googling Jason Aldean music video, try that in a small town? Yeah. And we should mention for those of you who follow country music, Jason Aldean has gotten political before. So this is not altogether surprising, but this is probably the most noise we've heard around one of his songs uh, in a very long time. 
from Axios, a story for avocado lovers. And who isn't? We learned this week about a new variety of avocado grown on a smaller tree called the Luna. It's reportedly also easier to harvest than the dominant Haas breed. A competitive Haas alternative could make supplies of the fruit more plentiful. After half a century of breeding and development, the University of California, Riverside, has released details on the Luna UC Riverside saying in a statement, the Luna offers consumers great flavor, a rind that turns a telltale black when ripe, and a high post-harvest quality. Growers, meanwhile, will benefit from a smaller tree size, allowing denser plantings for more efficient and safer harvesting and minimal pruning. The Hass, the leading commercial variety globally, produces, quote, a very high quality fruit, but one of the struggles is that it makes a very large tree. This is according to a co-inventor of the Luna. They add that worker safety is an issue on large trees and sometimes requires a ladder. The Luna, quote, tends to be very tall but slender, an upright tree that can produce more fruit per cubic meter and be harvested without ladders. For those of you listening to the pod today, you probably didn't think you would learn such details uh, when it comes to agriculture and avocados, did you? I've never really thought about where the avocados come from in terms of tree size or anything like that. Avocados from Mexico. Isn't that what the ad says? That's all I know too, Mosh. (laughs) (laughs) So Jill, if you're excited about the Luna avocado, and I know you all are, before you think you're going to see this at your local Trader Joe's or grocery store, It might take up to 15 to 20 years before this one hits the market. Apparently, it takes a while to introduce it, to grow it. Uh, It also apparently takes three to five years from planting a seed to producing the first fruit. You're learning a lot about avocados today. So that means, bottom line, whatever avocados you're getting right now, you're going to have them for a while. Uh, But your kids are going to really enjoy the Luna avocado one day. Um, And we should note that while avocado prices have been fairly low this year, climate change is affecting where the fruit is grown since hot weather can cause avocados to get sunburned. If the Luna becomes popular here, again, we're talking in the 2040s, I think, it could help offset problems with the existing variant, which includes small fruit size, especially as the tree ages, intolerance to extreme climate, and sensitivity to certain insects. As far as taste, and I know we're all curious about this, the inventors of the Luna say there are some subtle differences here, Jill. The Luna has a different flavor, but it still makes a wonderful bowl of guacamole. The main difference, they say, is the texture. Hmm. They're both creamy, but they claim the Luna is more smooth, if that makes sense. So they're both creamy, but Luna's more smooth. Do we want smooth? Does that appeal to you? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a while, but one day when you see the Luna in a grocery store, you're going to remember this podcast from 2023 being like, Motion Jill, you taught me about this avocado first, and I'm going to find out if I really want smooth. Heard it here first. The thing is, we are just used to the Haas avocados, so we'll see if we can make a switch. Okay, from the Wall Street Journal, getting into sororities has become nearly as competitive as acceptance to top universities. Who knew? Applicants are asked to write essays, give their grade point average, and report whether or not they did volunteer work or played high school sports. Women submit application packets with as many as 30 letters of recommendation. This is according... What is... Where is this? This has got to be in the South. (laughs) Nothing is worth 30 letters of recommendation. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is according to a Wall Street Journal trend piece about how people are hiring consultants now to help them get into sororities. Uh, one of those consultants, Stasia Damron, she is based out of Texas. She says some sororities require that applicants record video responses to their questions. And this has pushed young women and their families to hire these types of rush consultants, often for a heavy price. Her fees run as high as $4,000 for on-call service during rush. Another firm, it's all Greek to me, offers a $600 seminar for women and their mothers to learn the basics about getting into a sorority. Customers could also elect to purchase a $3,500 bundle, which provides unlimited access to sorority mentors who advise rushes through every step. What? This is the craziest story I've heard in a long time. Jill, were were you in a sorority in college? I was. I was in AFI, but there were no consultants. You definitely didn't Any letters of recommendation? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you even get? Jill, I haven't been in a fraternity, which has always been easier than sororities, but like literally fraternities when I was at GW were like, this guy's cool. This guy's not. This guy's cool. Like, what is all this about? I would say it's gotten a bit out of control, but I know that in certain schools across the country, there's always been this sort of big deal. There's been reality shows done about this. So diving deeper into this Wall Street Journal story, they interview the owner of a company called Recruitment Ready out of Atlanta. Her name is Leighton Newberry, which is a perfect name, I think, for this sort of job. And she spends a lot of time prepping young women for the conversations that they will have as they try to get into a sorority. So Newberry has a la carte sessions that cost $150 for video calls, $175 for in-person calls. And then she sells something called the Bid Day Bundle for $1,000. That includes three one-on-one sessions and assistance in writing resumes and cover letters, as well as styling tips on your makeup, your hair, what to wear in order to get to the sorority of your choice. There's another company called Greek Chic out of Manhattan that offers the $2,000 Fabulous and Chic package. It provides four sessions for applicants, social media strategy, wardrobe, as well as round-the-clock counseling during rush week. Can you imagine those phone calls, Jill? It's like midnight, they're calling in, and they're like, okay, this girl didn't like my shoes. How do I get around it? You know, all the nonsense you probably are facing in these types of sororities. Just to give you a sense of the numbers, 125,000 women across the country sought a spot in sororities at 500 campuses. Uh, This is data from the National Panhellenic Conference. About one out of four of them either quit or didn't get accepted during that process. So I guess there's a market here for these consultants. You know what? This story actually makes me feel a little bit sad that this is what's happening um, on college campuses. This is supposed to be such an exciting, fun time in somebody's life. And instead, it's this high pressure situation where you're seeing everything's become competitive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it actually makes me like I said, it makes me feel a little bit sad. I mean, I will say is, you know, I still have very close friends today from my experience in the fraternity, you know, to this day, some of my best friends in the world, including the uh, buddy who was the rabbi at my wedding. Uh, was a, a, a fraternity brother of mine. And so you do make the connections there, but it just feels like this is a lot, especially since for the most part, you're 18, you might be in your first semester of college and just the amount of pressure some of these kids feel these days. Did you know your friend was going to be a rabbi? Did you have any idea when you were in college? (laughs) Absolutely not. We all went to GW and half of us all thought we were going to work in politics because West Wing was our most favorite show on television. And so we all thought we were going into politics. He happened to, I think we interned on Capitol Hill at the same time. I would 
Be More Adjacent, covering politics for journalism. And he went to rabbinical school, so you can't really predict where your friends go, right? All right, now time for On This Day in History on this July 25th. Jill, I know you haven't gotten your fill lately of 19th century history, so don't worry. We begin today in 1814. Near Niagara Falls, On This Day in History, British troops thwarted an invasion of Canada by U.S. forces under General Jacob Brown. This is the much-touted Battle of Lundy's Lane during the War of 1812. You might remember the War of 1812 was the British attempt to retake the U.S. They burned down the White House. We would burn down the Parliament in Canada. And we apparently made several attempts at invading Canada uh, at three different points. All those campaigns ended in failure. And so on this day, our final attempt to take some land from Canada failed near Niagara Falls. I'm glad we're friends with Canada now <laughs> and not at war with them. It's it's a very long border to have to defend if uh, somehow we were, you know, at loggerheads. Okay, now to the 20th century. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, on this day, July 25th, 1978, the world's first baby to be conceived via IVF in vitro fertilization was born in Manchester, England to parents Leslie and Peter Brown. Her name was Louise Joy Brown. They would actually have a second daughter, Natalie, several years later, also through IVF. And then in 1999, Natalie became the first IVF baby to give birth to a child of her own. That was a concern they had in the early days of IVF as to whether the babies born via IVF could also uh, get pregnant or have children naturally. In December 2006, Louise Brown, the first IVF baby, gave birth to a boy, also conceived naturally. Uh, Jill, digging into IVF history here is fascinating because in the 70s, it was actually illegal to uh, carry out IVF in most of the U.S. Uh, and so laws would gradually have to change. It was considered too experimental at the time. So a major congrats to the scientists who developed this and the impact this has had for families around the world. And just how commonplace it is right now, uh, the biggest barrier is just the cost. It's really only covered by some of the, the bigger employers, a lot in the tech industry, but it, it's extremely expensive. Uh, so that is, is kind of like the barrier uh, to entry. Yeah, let's hope they can continue to make it more cost effective for more families. All right, a bit of pop culture here. Caddyshack premiered in theaters 43 years ago today, Jill, in 1980. It's in the hole. I somehow have not seen that movie, even though I'm now a, a new golfer. Jill, it's a must. It's I feel like it's up there with, we've talked about this before, with The Godfather uh, and um, those other films where you almost have to lie about it because it's kind of embarrassing. To say <laughs> oh, so I shouldn't have just admitted that? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's totally cool. You can go see that, Barbie and Oppenheimer. You have your work ahead of you in the coming weeks. Jill, fast forward to On This Day in 1992. Here's a fun little fact. After three decades, NBC aired its final Saturday morning cartoons on this day 31 years ago. Uh, for those of you of a certain age, there was a time where you had to wait till Saturday morning to watch your weekly cartoons. Uh, and then, of course, with the um, spread of cable, uh, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, that became less relevant. And so on the same history, uh, NBC uh, gave that time slot that they used to have cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons, over to the Today Show for the Weekend Today Show. I have very fond Saturday morning cartoon memories. And they were on early, right? Like seven in the morning. I just remember Smurfs. At a certain point, <laughs> that's that's yes. kind of where, where my brain goes. And I remember watching Fat Albert reruns, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, if you remember that. Fat Albert. <laughs> All right, on this day in music history, in Rhode Island, Bob Dylan went electric. He went from his acoustic guitar to electric guitar. It actually uh, prompted booing at his concert as he uh, played Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, many people disappointed 
that he was betraying the art by going electric, but it was a huge moment in rock history. And one more thing. ACDC released their Back in Black album. It is estimated that more than 50 million copies of the album have been sold worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums in music history. All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Those reviews really matter, so appreciate all of you who have uh, given us those five-star reviews and those kind words over on Apple, over on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and it does really matter uh, as we continue to try to grow uh, this podcast and uh, continue to build ourselves out on multiple platforms. By the way, if you don't get the Mo newsletter, that comes to you daily. It's in your inbox every morning just before 5 a.m. Uh, and we've been seeing some a great traction there as well, Jill. We do a deep dive on one big topic every day and then a potpourri round of speed reads for everyone so you can read uh, more deeply on a variety of topics every day. I'm putting the finishing touches on the newsletter as we speak. I multitask. Jill, you got a lot of plates spinning between the kids <laughs> and the newsletter. The podcast is all very impressive. As you're three and a half minutes from Mondays with Motion Alex. So we're going to let you go. <laughs> we're going to let me go. And we'll see you guys tomorrow. Later, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.